Today is Wednesday, January 19th. The title for our devotional is Past Longing. Yesterday, we looked at Curtis Chang's description of hope. He described it as hope is seeing yourself in a story, a past that gives you longing, a future that promises to fulfill that longing, and a present that energizes you to work towards that future fulfillment. The first part of his definition is viewing yourself as a part of a past that gives you longing. So with that context in mind, let's read uh, Romans 8, 18 through 25, a portion of what we read yesterday. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. First, it's important to keep in mind here that Paul is writing to two groups of antagonistic Christians at the church in Rome. He characterizes them in chapter 14 as the strong and the weak. The strong were more Gentile Christians who didn't feel obligated to continue living in accordance with the laws of Moses. They had a prominent social status in Rome and remained in Rome during the expulsion of the Jews, mostly. The weak are more Jewish Christians who still felt obligated to uphold some of the laws of Moses, not as a salvation issue, but as a holiness issue. They were kicked out of Rome for a few years and later required to pay high taxes, and they had little social clout to speak of. So the suffering he is referring to in verse 18 is directed at both of them. It is the strong being willing to stoop in their social status to the place of the weak and to forgo some of their religious privileges on behalf of the weak. The weak are suffering in that they are paying high taxes and have no social status at all. Both are called to suffer for the name of Christ in the community. Yet those sufferings do not compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul is here appealing to their common hope to maintain them through suffering. And he gives, and he goes all the way back to the most basic longing in the Christian story of creation. At the fall of Genesis 3, Creation, here creation is referring to the subhuman creation, that's plants, animals, earth, sea, all that stuff, trees, that was subjected to frustration by the curse. This curse was brought about by Adam and Eve's disobedience, but ultimately enacted by God upon creation. In this cursed state, creation groans, Paul says, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. This is referring to followers of Jesus, now God's people, fully living out the creation mandate from Genesis. Genesis 1.28, we read, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 2.15 likewise says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So the arrival of the sons of God is looking forward to the return of Christ when the people of God will uphold their creation mandate responsibilities, and so liberate creation. Not only has the subhuman creation been subject to frustration and groaning at the fall, but even the children of God groan inwardly, Paul says, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, that is the redemption of our bodies. 
This bleeds into tomorrow's and Friday's topics of present and future, but it also has implications for the past longing topic. Upon first reading of verse 23, perhaps you thought, aren't we already adopted as children of God? Then what's with all of this future hope talk? If you don't remember, verse 23 says, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The answer is both, (laughs) or the answer to both is yes, I would say. Theologically, we call this the already but not yet. In verse 14, a few verses earlier, Paul writes, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And in the next verse, verse 15, he writes, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So we are already adopted as children of God, evidenced by being led by the Spirit of God. But this will be fully realized or attained at the return of Jesus and the redemption of our bodies, which Paul has in mind here at this future sense. More on this tomorrow. For today, it is in this hope we were saved. Upon salvation, we have entered into this story of hope. In this story of hope, we look back to see a past that produces longing. Creation is groaning, still under the curse of sin, affected by entropy and all the effects of evil. Humanity, even followers of Jesus, are still living under the curse of creation as well, in our imperfect bodily states. Yet there is hope for full restoration. Why? As we look into the past, we see what creation could be in the Garden of Eden, and we long to return to that state. We have the promise of God that this is what he is doing for his people, and he's remaking all of creation and returning it to an Eden-like state. This hope, therefore, is grounded in the faithfulness of the one in whom our hope rests. It is in this context that Paul penned some of the most beautiful words ever written. Starting in verse 28, we're going to read through verse 39. And, when we, and we know that, all, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. There's our transformation theme again, as we've been talking about the last few weeks. That he might be the firstborn, that's Jesus, among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul's doing here is looking back at the history of salvation, what God has done in redemption and salvation of believers already. And he says, if God is for us, who then can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Reflection time today. As Paul does here in this text that I just read, reflect on what God has done for you in salvation and allow 
what he has done for you to fill you with hope that he will do what he has promised he will do.